Hello, welcome to the Ideonomics Podcast. My name is Neha Shazad Chandarajan, and I'm your host for today. I'm joining you from Ottawa, Ontario, which is on the unsurrendered and unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. Today, we are joined by the DG of the Multiculturalism and Anti-Racism Branch at the Department of Canadian Heritage, Winnie Manyin Peng. Hi, Winnie. Hi, Neha. Really, really nice to be here with you today. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, so, Winnie, I'm wondering if you can take us back in your career um, as to when you decided to start your career in government. Uh, where were you in life and what was your headspace at that time? Sure. So I was um, actually looking for a co-op term. Um, okay as a student. So I um, was contemplating uh, doing criminology because I had a keen interest in law and um, also interested in, in business law. So just law in general. And I actually started um, doing a, a student term with a law firm uh -huh. and found that it wasn't for me. <laughs> it was very, very corporate. Um, it's very much, you know, billing um, by the hour, billing by, I think we did like one sixth of an hour, like every 10 minutes was billed. We had to meet certain quotas for billing, etc. So it just wasn't what I envisioned doing for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided to switch uh, to do just a, a degree in uh, international business. And at the time, I'm going to be dating myself a little bit here, but at the time, the Medical Research Council of Canada, mm -hmm. which is the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, uh, was hiring in their international team. So they had an international business development team. So I applied as a student there and was hired and um, really, really enjoyed uh, doing international work with them. And they were primarily focused on negotiating um, agreements with other countries for postdoc fellows and things like that. So I really enjoyed it and ended up getting hired after I graduated uh, okay. into uh, CIHR at the time. So that's how I started my public service career. I guess it's something I stumbled upon, but then have had the privilege of um, doing many different jobs over, over my 22, three year career so far. Uh -huh. um, and I think, you know, being part of the public service is one of the biggest employers. It's just afforded such a great opportunity for me to, you know, in essence, get paid to learn new things. Yeah. So, <laughs> that, you know, I went from health research to working in, um, international health policy, uh -huh. bilateral health, uh, multicultural health issues with the UN, working on various conventions to working on women's health issues, mm -hmm. regulatory health issues, um, and then moving over to women and gender equality. Mm -hmm. uh, having worked there when it was status of women Canada, it became women and uh, gender equality a few years ago. Um, and really enjoyed my time there working on uh, missing and murdered as well as gender-based violence strategy. Oh, wow. and, then, and then it landed me, you know, over at uh, PCH working on multiculturalism and anti-racism. 
So I guess for most of my career, I've always landed in, in the social area, which is an area I really, really enjoy. No, that's great. You know, what's funny is that I was also thinking of applying to law school and uh, I went through the LSAT and everything, which is brutal, but it, I found the same thing. It was really corporate and it was, it's just like, there's just not much room for the kind of change that you think that you might be making. And so I was like, I can't do this for, for the rest of my life. Yeah. I, I think perhaps as, um, as children to immigrant parents, you're given, um, some choice, like you can go into medicine or you can go into law yeah. and it's really, really just not great at math, not great at the sciences. Mm -hmm. So my parents are like, well, maybe law. And then took a couple of classes and worked at a law firm and was like, yeah, this is not for me. So, you know, I tend to gravitate towards social issues. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, I've been lucky to, to be able to be afforded the opportunities I have been afforded. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to move to like you've moved around quite a lot um, and thankfully it looks like really um, like it seems like your career has flowed in uh, in like positive directions where you go where you went from like um, just health and then women's health and then gender-based violence and then missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, I'm wondering how like as you progress in your career like how did your understanding of your own identity shape the choices that you made in your work and your career progression? Yeah, so when I when I think about my identity, mm -hmm. um, it actually started quite young. So I'm a daughter to immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. um, I came to Canada at a very, very young age. I think I was four or five. And, you know, I, at the time, I'm not going to tell you the year, but at the time, there <laughs> was not a lot of uh, diversity in, in schools. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in my school, in my elementary school, we were probably, I was one of a handful of, of um, East Asian kids. You're right. So as you see now, um, in my signature block, in sort of when you search me on GEDS, my name is Winnie Men Yin Peng. Mm -hmm. But um, when I was young, I really, really struggled with my name. Um, mm -hmm. Every year I dreaded the first day of school because I knew the teacher would go through the transcript, get to my name mm -hmm. and would read out my Chinese name. Right. And it bothered me because I knew it came with a year of teasing with, you know, kids asking me why man was in my name, you know, am I a boy, am I a girl, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it would just come with a, a year of teasing. So um, I actually went to my parents when I was in about grade four and said to them, listen, like, I really just, can you just speak to the school? I really, really am struggling um, every year when they read out my Chinese name. So can you just have them remove that name and just stick with Winnie Pei? Mm -hmm. and my parents agreed and they said okay if it's causing you this much issue then sure we'll change it so then from grade four onwards it was always Winnie Pang right um, and it was always Winnie Pang for work as well I've, I've never had my my Chinese name as, as part of uh, my signature block or or who I present myself as uh, in my in my work but it was about uh, two years ago uh, on the heels of George Floyd, 
Joyce Etchaquan and, and reading DM Quan Watson's um, response to the Rex Murphy article. Oh yeah. Um, and hearing his story about taking back his, his um, Chinese uh, last name. Right. That really inspired me to also embrace my Chinese last name. And it was, it was a tough decision for me because, you know, ever since grade four, mm -hmm. my goal has been to blend in, right? Mm -hmm. and how do I make sure I don't stand out? Right. How do I make sure I hide my Asian-ness mm -hmm. and be as white, as Canadian as possible? Mm -hmm. So I would always diminish my difference as opposed to celebrating it. Yeah. I think on the, on the heels of of this huge rise in racism and, and hate around the world and in Canada as well. Um, I really felt like it wasn't time to hide, but it was time to bring my authentic self and to stand with other communities as, as an ally mm -hmm. um, and to have my, my identity seen and heard. Yeah. So that, that's really, you know, it's, it's been just a few years that I'm really starting to uh, embrace um, my identity as an Asian Canadian. Yeah. I really actually like identify with what you said about like hiding in the background rather than bringing out your identity. Cause I had that experience in middle school in high school here as well. But I think just like you were inspired with uh, Deputy Minister Kwan Watson, I think you will also be inspiring many people to uh, bring out their authentic names and bring that to work now. So uh, thank you for putting your name back in there. I'm glad to I'm glad to see it. Thank you. Now, as you're at work, I'm wondering like because like you probably did as you said, struggle with your identity. Like, I wonder how you found belonging in the public service. Did you seek out any mentors or did you find you or did you join any committees? Yeah, so belonging I find is, is, is tough in the Canadian context mm -hmm. um, because I, I, don't, um, I don't often remember that I look different. Yeah, I'm conversing with colleagues. Mm -hmm. We sort of have meetings, and and I see myself truly mm -hmm. part of of Canadian society and Canadian identity. Mm -hmm. um, but every time I'm reminded that I look different, mm -hmm. usually by someone else, mm -hmm. and it's it's usually starting with the question: So, where are you from? What's your background? And mm -hmm. it's it's just a constant reminder that although I may see myself as as identifying as you know part of the Canadian mosaic, mm -hmm. obviously others they are not viewing me the same way. Yeah, but at the same time, I also find it difficult to get that sense of belonging from um, from you know my my ethnicity. So as an example, like I've traveled back. I've traveled to Hong Kong, I've traveled to, to Taiwan, I've traveled to China, to various parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and my father's from Hong Kong, my mom's from Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But every time I travel there, it, I, I don't feel like that's home. Yeah. I feel like I'm a tourist 
in someone else's country. I can relate certainly to sort of cultural aspects, but I'm also very easily identifiable to the mm-hmm. local as someone that's foreign. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. it's it's something that I've struggled with. Like, you know, I can't I can't find that sense of belonging when I'm abroad in a country where people look like me. Mm-hmm. But then I come back to Canada where I do feel a sense of of you know of of belonging and and I do feel like I'm part of the fabric of of society and then to be reminded constantly that maybe that's not how you're viewed. Mm-hmm. So it it translates into the the work environment as well, right? So I've I've um struggled with you know working as I mentioned in the international file before and primarily I, I worked a lot on the Asia Pacific file because I speak the language so it's yeah. it's an asset mm-hmm. and uh more often than not I'd I'd be asked to work on files related to Japan, China, Korea, etc. Right. And um, you know, I'll get the I'll get the off the cuff comments like, you know, are you sitting behind the right flag? As an example. And uh, it's it speaks to the fact that, you know, people don't view me as as being Canadian. Oh my um, god. During COVID, it was it was extremely hurtful to me, but I think to many public servants of in particular of, of Chinese descent mm-hmm. to see um, to see criticism of, of Dr. Teresa Tam. Yeah. And the questioning of her loyalty mm-hmm. to um, in particular because of the WHO and and um, you know China's role at the at the WHO at the time. So you yeah. know it's it's very difficult to to see that play out. Um, at a time when you know the country needed to come together and and to see those fingers pointed it, it was really really tough to see so I think, I think belonging is something where there are days or months or weeks where i feel yeah i'm really mm-hmm. part of the core public service i'm i'm part of you know accepted and part of canadian society and and really integrated and then there are other days where i feel like yeah you you may think that but Mm-hmm. Not agrees with that perspective, so it's it's something that I continue to struggle with and and to find my path. Yeah, with that Teresa Tam stuff, it or Dr. Teresa Tam, I fa- I thought it was so brutal. I just sometimes you get that reminder, like you said, it's always this external reminder that you don't belong. Uh, based on how even the public will react to a public figure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think during COVID, like what really hurt me the most was a lot of the attacks against the Asian community were against the elderly. And against oh, yeah. It was against the most vulnerable mm-hmm. population. And, and, you know, it, it just goes to show that um, equity, diversity and inclusion is something that can be taken away so quickly and so easily. When yeah, feeling threatened, and it's it was just really, really tough to see. And I think it it just goes to show, you know, some people pick on the most vulnerable in our society, and and it doesn't matter if if they're Asian, non Asian. It's just um, it's a re- reality of of the cowardness, right? This is somebody that I can overpower, so that's who I decide to 
to, yeah. to pick up. And so going back to that and your experience in the public service itself. All right, so going back to your other question about efforts within the government on, yes. on curbing racism. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of um, progress has been made over mm -hmm. the past years with the court's call to action, with each department investing in anti-racism units, having dedicated diversity and inclusion um, discussions, committees within departments. There's a lot, a lot of work going on in the public service. And I think, I think that's created an environment where many of us are feeling safe to engage in these discussions. Uh -huh. I think, you know, if I think back 20 years, 15, 20 years, even 10 years, I'm, I'm not sure that I would feel as safe having these open and honest discussions as, as I do today. So mm -hmm. I think that's made a huge, huge uh, impact. However, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I, what I see is there continues to be a siloing of, of anti-racism, equity, diversity, and inclusion work within the public service. Okay. So it's always easy to point to like, oh, look, but we have a DNI strategy oh, look, but we have these efforts focused on anti-racism. But where I would like to see the public service go is to a place where EDI is ingrained in everything we do. It becomes second nature. I need to see it in finance, in communications, yeah. in HR, in mm -hmm. procurement, in all facets of the work that we do in the public service. Because I think that's where we will truly see change. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. I started thinking about like your flag, like the little flag story you shared. And I'm wondering, did you, are there other experiences of like microaggressions like that, that you've experienced in the government um, while you were at work? And how did you deal with those if you did experience them? Well, I, I I mean, I've been in the public service for over 23 years, so mm -hmm. I have experienced microaggressions. And, you know, I think I think the the positive to all of this is it's been less and less over that's the good. years. Mm -hmm. That's a good trend, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether the trend is the result of less microaggression or if it's the result that I'm now in a position of power. Mm -hmm. and I, I totally recognize that I am a privileged person in a position of power that uh -huh. may not continue to experience the aggressions that um, that others may be experiencing in the public service. But you know, I also started out as a a junior program officer analyst. I started out as a PM one in the government, uh -huh. and I remember pretty early in my career, I was working with a manager on a briefing note. And I was reading through the note and I provided a comment to the effect of, oh, you know, this paragraph, I find a little bit difficult to understand what, what you're trying to get through in this particular paragraph. And the response from my manager at the time was, oh, well, you know, I understand why it would be difficult for you to understand. Oh my so um, if you would like, I'm more than happy to send you away on English language training. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> and that was, 
you know, one of my first experiences where I felt, you know, similar to your reaction, I felt the wind knocked out of me mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how to react. But, you know, I was in my early 20s, new to the public service, not wanting to ruffle feathers, like mm-hmm. many, many immigrants feel like they don't want to ruffle feathers. We're lucky to be in a country that's accepting of, of us. Um, and I, I didn't, I didn't say anything to my manager at the time. And, you know, this isn't the only, only instance that's happened to me where clearly, um, I felt, um, discriminated against based on my race and I didn't speak up for myself. And I, I carry, you know, some guilt, um, as a result of that, because I, you know, thinking back, I'm like, how many more people had to deal with these microaggressions because I didn't call it out. Mm -hmm. I didn't say something. Yeah. It's something that, um, I encourage, uh, others to do. And certainly it's something that, that I do now, but I know it's easier said than done, especially for people who are not in positions of power. Um, so that's one example. Um, another example was, you know, as I mentioned, I used to work on, on the international file. Mm-hmm. And in particular on the Asia Pacific file. And I remember traveling with a director at the time. And while we were in China, um, they, as part of sort of, I guess, their public service, they would have these women come into the room and fill your teacup with mm-hmm. hot tea every so often. So at work, meaning. Visit, at work meetings. So they would yeah. just come in as part of the, the work meeting and sort of top up your tea or pour out your cold tea and refill it with hot tea. So coming back from that, that trip, uh, my director at the time said as part of our postmortem, wow, yeah. wasn't that wonderful that there were these, these women that would come and refill our tea for us. Mm-hmm and make sure we always had hot tea. I think it's something that we might want to adapt moving forward when we have delegations coming in. Oh God. And then immediately looked at me and said, Winnie, like, do you think you can go out and get us some good tea from Chinatown or something? And immediately I felt like the blood draining from my face. And in that instance, I did say, no, I, I don't have any experience in selecting tea. So I'm not, I'm not the person to go to on this. Um, and I sort of kept, um, obviously the, the biases out of that, but it's something that that stuck with me as well. But these are just a couple of, of many, many examples that I can give. And I'm, I'm sure that my stories, unfortunately are not unique. I'm sure that many mm-hmm. people in services have faced similar, you know, acts of discrimination or biases within their public service career. So it's unfortunate, but it's, it's um, hopefully something that um, will cease to exist um, with more training, with more awareness. In, in mm-hmm. the coming. Mm-hmm. Good for you on the TV. <laughs> Good for you. No, I don't know anything about teas. How about you go yeah. and select some teas and start pouring <laughs> it for delegates? No, thanks. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's kind of like almost like, oh, does he know what your role is? <laughs> You're a policy analyst or or wherever you were at the time. And he's saying, oh, maybe you could be like one of those Chinese women who gave us some nice tea in the, in the tea room. <laughs> like, no, you don't work for 
David Steve or anything no. like that. Come on. <laughs> Come on, man. Get it together. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, and also even for your first manager to say that to you, it's like they forgot that you have been in Canada your whole life or has anyone who has a conversation with you would know that you would, you've been in Canada for a qu quite a long time. Like me talking to you, I thought you had been born here. So, oh my goodness. It's crazy how much appearance can completely override people's rationality in these situations um and i hope people now don't experience anything like that in my experience thankfully i haven't so that's good news so i think that's you are right really really encouraging for me to hear because you know i think as more and more of us stand up and not stand for comments mm -hmm. like that the more people are self-reflecting checking themselves before they make uh, statements like that. So I think I think we need to set an example within the public service. We're a microcosm of society. And, and if we're not gonna step up our game, then who will, right? So we've got to create an environment that's safe for everyone and that, that welcomes uh, everyone, regardless of the country they're born in, regardless of the way they look, regardless of their accessibility needs. Like it's just mm -hmm. gotta be an environment that's safe and welcoming for everyone. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, hearing your experience, they would feel more comfortable saying things and calling people out on that. You know, as you were talking, I it took me back to one of my uh, my first experiences in government, which is a really positive one. I had uh, I had a manager who was also a racialized woman. It was almost at the end of Ramadan, like I had uh, told my team about it and everything like that. So told the team about it, Eid was coming up and I was like requesting time off for, for Eid. And my manager, just without even like me asking for it, she was wondering if there was a way that I could take like religious leave off or something like that. Cause she was like, I don't want it to eat into your vacation. And you know, we get Christmas off. So it should only be fair that you get Eid off. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. And so she looked into it and came back to me and she's like, okay, well, I couldn't find anything, but so we'll just have to tag it as vacation. But I so appreciated that. It was so sweet of her to go out of her way and look for leave that might count under like religious leave. Just wanted to share that. It was really sweet. But that's, that's a great example of where the system needs to catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. To, to the changing needs of, of the public service because you know, this is this is the stuff we want to get at when we talk about systemic racism. This is the stuff where it really is across the board systems change that'll enable us to provide that welcoming mm -hmm. um, environment where everybody feels like they're represented and respected in the workplace. So that's a great example of of you know things that we need to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hopefully we can actually tackle things like that. Now, I'm wondering, so thinking about like systemic change and all of that. So what do you see as a pathway forward to meaningfully advancing EDI in government? Well, as I mentioned, I think there's been a lot of progress. And in particular, I think the government has done really, really well in increasing representation. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I think the next step to that is ensuring that there's inclusion. Yeah. And that's much more difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. I think 
I think right now when I look at the clips call to action, when I look at the DMs letters in response to the call to action, a lot of the data focuses on those numbers of representation. That's right. Um, but to me, there isn't enough um, of a narrative around the why. Mm -hmm. So why are we increasing this representation? It's because diversity in our in the public service actually results in better programming and better policies because you have the different perspectives. You have a public service that's more representative of the Canadians that rely on us for our services and programming, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to look at it from that perspective. Like what is the value that this diversity is bringing into the public service and how can we, how can we capitalize on that value? And yeah. I think that's where we need to move towards. When, when we talk about inclusion, it's easy to say, oh, within X department, we've increased our representation by 15%. But that's where disaggregated data, disaggregated data comes in, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, you've increased it by 15%, but in which areas? Yeah. At what levels? Mm -hmm. You know, do you still have pockets of your organization where you don't have any diversity? How do you bring diversity within those particular pockets where there isn't any now? So That's I think right. those are the types of conversations we need to start having. Another, another important point, I think, in advancing EDI in the government is a lot of this work is done on the shoulders of, of racialized and religious minority community employees. Mm -hmm. um, it's unpaid work yeah. that people log back in at the end of a long day to do this work. Mm -hmm. And not only is it not paid, most of the time it's not recognized. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to make a conscious effort to ensure that this is at minimum recognized work through our performance evaluation process. How do we ensure that this work is actually factored into the assessment of employees? Because is this what'll bring them from a succeeded to a succeeded plus? Right. And until we actually value this work, mm -hmm. it will continue to be um, work that, you know, if it's important at work, it should be valued work. And we mm -hmm. need to sort of step up our game in ensuring that it's valued work and recognizing that. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that a DG is thinking about these sort of things because that's where we kind of we need this kind of thinking because it'll just filter down like you have that power to be able to say to managers and directors hey we need to start putting this into our PMAs um, because I know some of our staff like work with all these different networks and they they get all these opportunities to work on you know different briefing notes or briefing senior levels uh, senior management um, that they might not get in their in their day job and um, I was really lucky. Again, I had another manager who really encouraged that and she put it into my PMA and now it's become sort of a legacy thing in my PMA. So I'm lucky in that sense that I had that support. Uh, and with people like you advocating for it more, I hope more people get that, get that luck as well. Well, I, I have a great example. So, um, you know, May 2021 at the peak mm -hmm. of COVID, mm -hmm. um, the shooting in Atlanta happened. Um, mm -hmm. And I had a lot of Asian employees reach out to me. And at the same time, I, I was reaching out to provide support, to seek support, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
that that just pointed to a gap in the public service and, and there was a desire to create a network of um, Asian employees, mm -hmm. a place where Asian employees can come together to provide support to one another, to talk about issues of concern, barriers to opportunities, et cetera. So we sort of pulled together a few folks um, from across the government that we knew within our own sort of personal networks and, and mm -hmm. uh, within our professional networks to say, hey, are you interested in helping us bring this idea to life and really get a, a network started? So as part of that, we had sort of uh, racialized DGs, directors, all the way to sort of um, new public servants, right, that were first, second year in the public service, all mm -hmm. wanting to contribute. And as a result of everybody's efforts, we were able to pull together a launch event um, that was very well attended, I believe, by over a thousand uh, people from across the government. Oh, um, and we were able to get very sort of strong support from speakers like DM Kwan Watson came to speak on the East Asian experience. We had mm -hmm. Deputy Minister Anola Rora from StatsCan speak about the uh, South Asian experience. And then we had Gina Wilson speak, DM Gina Wilson speak about allyship. Oh, wow. In addition to that, we had, um, we had Dr. Tam um, from the public health agency um, provide a video clip because it was at the peak of COVID. We couldn't get her live, but we were right. pleased to, to have a video clip um, indicating support for the network. So all of this work could not have happened without people logging back into their systems after work mm -hmm. and scenario notes together and creating speeches and remarks and organizing all the logistics. So as a result of that, starting in uh, starting that year in 2021 and last year and this year as well, um, and moving forward, um, I've I have been writing sort of a little um, blurb, a couple of paragraphs yeah. that I will send to uh, network volunteers. I'll send it to their managers, directors, DGs, ADMs, doesn't matter who. Mm -hmm. um, and that paragraph basically highlights what they've done what their okay. contribution was to the network, but also the leadership competencies that they've built oh, wow. as a result of their participation in, in this work. So to your point, as an example, we had EC twos, threes, and fours that were actively engaged in building the scenario around our launch event. And they had the opportunity to brief DMs on that scenario and to walk them through but that's not an opportunity they may get within their regular job. So as a result, we were able to sort of indicate some of these leadership competencies that they were building as part of their experience at NAFE. And we asked their managers and directors to ensure that this was part of the evaluation for the year, because I think it would just be a lost opportunity to recognize mm -hmm. some of these skills and strengths that were built through, through the work of, of the networks. And I, I hope that this is something that will be ongoing. I've sort of shared with other networks and I've noticed that there are pockets of other networks that are doing the same thing, but it's something that we want to see regularized across the public service. That's incredible. I just made a little note for myself to do that for our network as well, because that is that's such an easy way to, to showcase that, you know, I've done this work and I can be rewarded for it in my, in my performance evaluation. That's awesome. 
Amazing. And you know what? I find a lot of these networks and initiatives end up coming from world events that end up affecting us. It's kind of the, that policy window that you hear about in policy theory, which is sometimes this work can only go forward when there's an event or particular scenarios where you can drive this, this kind of work forward. So I'm glad that so many people have been able to take advantage of those, those types of windows and you've created something fantastic with Maeve. Okay, so we're coming to the end. What one book or, doesn't have to be a book, like a TV show or a movie, uh, has inspired you in the course of your life? And if you could explain a little bit as to why. So I, I've been thinking about this question in particular because there's so many sort of books, there's so many documentaries that have sort of shaped the way I think. Mm -hmm. um, but one book in particular that I probably picked up more than 10 years ago and I continue to sort of read from time to time is a book called Quiet by Susan Cain. Mm -hmm. And the book is essentially about um, different types of leadership. So within, I find the public service, if you look at the key leadership competencies, we tend to hire the same type of leadership, right? It's really people that are extroverts, charismatic, speaks mm -hmm. meetings, drives change and action. But I think there's also room for other types of leaders. And within this book, they talk about introverts mm -hmm. as a those that like to sort of hang back and listen as opposed to speak up. Those that like to work independently as opposed to constantly um, engage in discussions. Those that need quiet reflection time. And, you know, I, one of my, um, one of my mentors um, and was a previous boss of mine is really a quiet leader. Mm. And I've taken a lot of inspiration uh, from her because I see the way that she leads and yeah. she really leads from behind, which is not something that you see often in the public service. Mm -hmm. so what I mean by that is she allows her team to shine and she's okay taking that backseat, providing the support they need, but allowing them to move forward and allowing her team to really take ownership. And she does it in a way that um, that's very um, humbling. Mm -hmm. And she really is that type of quiet leader um, that um, is much more of an introvert, is not sort of out there charming everyone. That's not how she works. Um, she's very thoughtful. If she's gonna say something, it's very, very thoughtful. And that's something I've always aspired, but I've never been able to sort of put my, my finger on the type of leadership that is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think growing up in, in an immigrant family, in a racialized family, um, we've been taught from a very early age, you don't talk back. Yeah. You know, if you're in a job, you listen to your boss and you do what you're told, et cetera. And we're, we're not taught to sort of have that challenge function. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't make strong leaders. And it doesn't mean that there's no room for that type of leadership. So I really, really value um, what I've learned in the book and having a book that sort of speaks to the introverts of the world and, mm -hmm. and that like to hang back and listen more than um, more than being that charismatic, go out and charm everybody uh, type of, of leader, I think is is an important option for the public service to think about. 
because similar to diversity, it's not just diversity as it relates to representation, but it's maybe also diversity of the types of leaders that we want around the table. Yeah, 100%. I've seen so much more on the value of introverts, so much more that has come out like just in the past couple of years. Um, and just like you said, yeah, we are told mostly to sit back, don't talk back. It took me, I think, a long time to be able to speak up and speak out. I was going to say, you said like, oh, you haven't been able to put your finger on being thoughtful when you speak, but I find you're quite thoughtful. That comes with age, maybe. <laughs> maybe yeah, probably. <laughs> Well, Winnie, thank you so much for, for being here. I had a blast listening to your stories uh, and sharing in your experiences. I hope we can have you back sometime. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I, you know, this type of discussion is what replenishes my soul and allows me to sort of continue to do the work that I do because, you know, I was recently on a panel at CSPS and I sort of said, um, while I was moderating the panel that this is not just hard work like H-A-R-D, but it's also heart work. Yes. H-E-R-T, H-E-A-R-T, uh, heart work. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's that's important to, to note that, you know, this type of work takes an emotional toll yeah. on people that, that do it day in, day out. And I think that's why it's all the more important to engage in these dialogues and you know, and to support one another and, and be inspired, right? So happy, mm -hmm. happy to do this. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ideanomics podcast. We hope it was enjoyable for you as it was for us. For more anti-racism news, please follow us on our social media channels on Twitter, Iran Network underscore PS, and our LinkedIn, Anti-Racism Ambassadors Network. If you would like us to discuss any topics on the podcast, or if you have any questions, please DM us on our social channels or email us at aran.publicservants at gmail.com. This episode was hosted by Neha Shazad and produced by Marcella Popovich. Thanks so much and see you next time.